Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 101 of the show. Today, we have Fred Brothers and Katie Robinson, founders of Uprising Capital and Fortuity Calling, joining us today. And they've both got a great story focused around social entrepreneurship and really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode, and we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors. Let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Fred Brothers and Katie Robinson. And Fred and Katie are the co-founders of Uprising Capital, a social impact investment firm that brings together market needs, passionate people, investment capital, management expertise, an extensive network and technology to achieve economic gains and social good. Fred has a wide range of experience in the investment world, having participated in over $27 billion in capital transactions working with both growth-oriented startups as well as exits and IPOs. And Katie has a background in marketing, product development, innovation, and investment. And their current largest project to date is Fortuity Calling, which has raised over $12 million to date. Uh, We're very excited to have them here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Thank thank you for having us. So what's, what's your guys' day going like so far? What's a typical day look like for the two of you? It's been a good day, but I don't think there's any typical day for us. Um, as a startup, uh, we just closed on our financing 
December 26th of 2017. So um, we've only been in our building uh, for four months. Um, so, you know, we have to manage the building, manage the tenants in the building, um, as well as work on startup for the business, business development stuff, we're paying bills. I mean, we're doing everything. I think Fred had to mop something the other day. <laughs> yeah, we're, no matter what goes wrong, we're the folks who have to do it. So we go from grabbing a mop to uh, if a sink overflows to uh, working on raising another million or two dollars for the project to working with the architects on the renovation for the building to trying to uh, do some outreach to do some sales so we can start hiring folks and creating jobs in Franklin. So it sounds like, I mean, you guys have your hands in a little bit of everything during the day. Is there ever like a typical day at all? Yes and no. The typical day is there's lots to do. We actually really like what we do. If we could only have 36 hours in every day, we probably could get it all done. So, uh, frankly, most of it is Katie telling me, hurry up, I'm behind on stuff, and if I would have just hit my deliverables, we'd be good. Yeah, I think our relationship is I'm very impatient, so I want things to get done on, on schedule and very quickly. Fred is super patient, and he's got a methodology, which seems crazy, but ends up working. So, that um, might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> yeah, so I think part of the day is, um, you know, with my role, trying to project manage um, and Fred trying to um, move really big rocks. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into too much detail on what you guys have going on today with Fertuity, maybe let's take a step back and talk about each other's childhood and your guys' path where you are today and how you met each other. Um, maybe we'll just talk about the high points and what sticks out the most throughout that path. You know, I think my, my childhood is similar to, to many. My parents divorced when I was young. Um, we lived in Florida, moved to Ohio. And um, actually, you know, my father was bipolar. And so it, for me, it was always very much like a parent-child relationship, but opposite. Um, I was more of the parent, you know, and I had to kind of take care of him. And so I think that made me grow up very quickly um, and made me very responsible. So that has always carried with me, you know, through school, through college, um, where I've, you know, just kind of taken on that role as I'm the person who needs to make sure things happen, get things done quickly. And so I, I think I've seen throughout my career that I've uh, worked with um, several very brilliant people who are able to do amazing things but maybe aren't super organized. And so um, my strength comes in to kind of come in and complement that and figure out how we can take those ideas and really get them um, implemented in an organized fashion. And then college and situation like that? Yes, I went to the Ohio State University. Um, I actually majored in women's studies. So the first thing my parents asked me is, like, what are you going to do with that? And I said I didn't know, but I didn't want to spend four years studying something that I didn't enjoy. Um, I actually ended up getting a job at COSI uh, while I was in college and worked for um, the marketing department there, helped to market field trips and COSI After Dark. So I got interested in marketing, did a lot of work with them, and kind of went from there. My first job was at Alliance Data. Um, at the time, it was limited credit services, and I started as a, a marketing coordinator. I spent 16 years there um, in a lot of different roles, did um, some innovation work for them, product management, product development, um, client relationships. So, And after 16 years, I'd felt like um, I kind of did everything I was going to do. It was time for a change. and. 
um, I had actually met Fred. He had a consulting firm that came in and did some work for us, and he'll tell you a little bit about how he ended up at FIS, but he uh, reached out to me and was looking for some folks, and I went to work for him in corporate strategy. Fred, we'll kick it to you. So <clears throat> some interesting parallels in the background, although uh, we didn't meet for many, many years. So my parents are also divorced, uh, had two sisters, was raised by a single mom, uh, also in Florida. By bizarre coincidence, Katie and I, we figured out much, much later, lived within like 10 miles of each other for a year or two in Florida, never met. Still had ties to Columbus. My dad and my stepmom were here, so I spent summers here, but home was on the beach in Fort Lauderdale, and it wasn't a bad place to grow up. Um, came here after high school to go to college, the Ohio State University, go Bucks. Spent three years in engineering school. I was one of the weird ones. I had good grades in engineering school. I just hated it. So uh, my junior year, I checked it all and switched into the business school, doubled in marketing and finance. Never thought the engineer, all the pain and suffering. I mean, all the time I spent in engineering uh, was going to be any good. And then we bought this building, and all of a sudden I'm using skills that I studied 30 years ago in school that I never expected. After college, went to work for a nice mutual life insurance company here in town. Was there for seven years. It was a good place. Uh, we sold the company. Answered an ad in the back of the Columbus Dispatch. Only folks of a certain age will even believe this. We used to find jobs in one-inch classifieds printed in the back of the nightly paper. I answered an ad for a company I had never heard of called Check Free. They did what I went and met with them, had no idea what they did. I just knew they wanted a product manager. Uh, ended up staying 11 years. Got really lucky. Didn't, didn't have any grand plan. Didn't, didn't know I wanted to do a tech startup. Didn't, didn't think that electronic payments were going to be a gigantic thing. Um, just answered an ad in the back of the newspaper and met some nice folks, and they were really smart. And so I, I went there pretty early. We had a couple million dollars in revenue from uh, their bill payment business. We invented, for the most part, bill pay online and through your bank and any other way. We, we helped to invent online banking and, and mainstream uh, mobile banking and mobile payments eventually. Uh, we did an IPO in... 2000, uh, excuse me, uh, 1997. Uh, in today's dollars, it'd be unicorn. Uh, it was 800 million back then, but uh, I kind of figure I got my first unicorn merit badge back then. Uh, stayed 11 years. We sold it in 2007 uh, for enough that I got a second unicorn merit badge. I didn't have a lot of stock in the company, but I learned a lot. Left there after that, started a consulting firm. One of my best and certainly the smartest customer I had was Katie Robinson at Alliance Data. Did a couple of year gig with them, worked out good. Uh, we sold the firm to our largest customer in early 2009. And even though it's not very good form to go hire your customers away from your former, uh, your, your clients away from your former customers, first person I hired was Katie. And so we, That'd be the second company then we worked at together, and we were there six years. Huge technology company for banks. Kind of got tired of traveling probably 100-plus days a year. I probably probably put 3 million miles in the air on my body. I probably slept in a hotel for a couple thousand 
nights and uh, my 50th birthday present to me was I said screw it and I chucked it all and I quit cold turkey and went to telling my team, I hope you don't mind me sharing this story, I went to telling my team that I was going to leave and Katie said what are you going to do and I said well we're, I'm not going to do social impact in Columbus and I got this crazy idea that we can you know, launch a call center in Franklinton and really make a macro level impact. Let's see if we can go create three or five hundred jobs in the poorest neighborhood in central Ohio. And uh, So I'm going to go do that and don't worry, you get to work for one of my peers. And she said, wow, that's kind of crazy but kind of cool. Uh, she said, you don't know this about me, but when I first went to college I thought I was going to be a social worker. So that's kind of interesting to me. And so in a moment of extreme madness, she quit her perfectly good job too. And we thought this project would take a year to get fortuity to this point. It took three. We did some other good work in, the, in between, and here we are. So actually, we were fortunate to have Pete on the show who released uh, this week, had him about two weeks ago, to talk Very about cool. that experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> amazing story and path where you guys made it. I'm curious, as you climbed in the company, what were your roles when you guys eventually sold, and um, what were your different experiences as you grew through CheckFree? Uh, so I came in as a product manager. I uh, became, um, I think, VP of product, and then I was VP of customer service. I, I did a couple of gigs running the call centers. They had folks that had had some operational challenges, and Pete asked me to go in and uh, see if I could fix it. I didn't know anything about it, but it turned out it was kind of fun, and I, I liked people, and I had a knack for starting stuff and turning it around, and we got customer service straightened out. Twenty years later, those skills are relevant to what we're doing today. Kind of funny. Uh, the last role that I had there, I was head of strategy for the company. So, Katie, I got a question for you. Fred comes up to you, tells you, this is what I want to do, I'm going to leave my job. Why do you leave yours? What made you, other than the fact that you wanted to work in, in, in a social impact environment, was there anything else that was pushing you that direction? Were you tired of working at your current job? What kind of gave you that kick to, to, to abandon ship? Yeah, so the last role that I had at FIS um, was corporate venture capital role. So I would find companies, um, startup tech companies that had really innovative solutions that we needed, that our clients needed, but that we weren't ready to invest in building ourselves. So we'd find these companies, we'd invest in them, we'd sit on their board, we'd resell their solutions, um, and I really enjoyed that. And I found myself after a period of time like feeling like uh, identifying more with our portfolio companies than with our company. I felt like I was more on their side. I understood their, you know, I'd be excited to go to their, to their locations and hang around with, you know, their, their team because they were just so nimble and innovative and fun versus working in, I don't know how big FIS was, $7 billion at the time. Yeah. 44,000 employees in 140 countries and lots of corporate. Where it was very hard to get things. I mean, the reason why we had to invest in these companies is because we couldn't built these things, right? The only way we could get some of these new technologies was to go out and, and partner. So uh, um, I felt like, you know, Fred's idea was an opportunity to mix together. Yeah, I did want to be a social worker. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I didn't end up doing that. But I also loved um, the startup world. I did love tech, tech, and I figured there's a way to kind of combine those and do something good. But have some fun doing it. And to me, because I'd moved, I, I've done 
couple of growth stage companies and we've sold them to larger corporates. And if you looked at my career, I kind of, I love growth stage and I love growing companies and growing people and finding customer needs and delivering on them. And then, then it gets big, the company gets big and it's not that exciting for me anymore for reasons that Katie just outlined. I'm like the reluctant corporate executive and then um, eventually for whatever reason I, I get back out of that and I always go back to doing growth stage and being an entrepreneur and um, when she told me those things it made perfect sense because I love growth stage and I love building stuff and kind of maintaining really big stuff and being focused on earnings per share for Wall Street and what we're going to say in the next uh, quarterly earnings call. While that can be very profitable, I think for us it wasn't as satisfying and we kind of figured that, a little, that out a little bit with Uprising too. With Uprising Capital, we, I think we initially thought we were going to do more smaller and some passive investments in social impact, kind of bring together some of the skills and experiences that we've got in our network and all that other stuff and a little bit of money too. And I think what we both realized is we really enjoy being operators. I think we really enjoy being operators in a, a startup and a growth stage environment more than being a passive investor and certainly more than being in a big, steady corporate that you're struggling to grow 3, three or 4% a year. Yeah. Although yeah, at FIS, growing 4% a year meant you, were, you had to add three or $400 million a year of revenue. So it's no small task. But it's it's real steady state. It's not. You certainly. I certainly when when I was when I was there, I certainly never had to go grab a mop. I'm, I'm, I kind of yeah. like that part. Well, you think back to the times in your career where you were the most energized, right? Where you would want to work 15 hours a day, and you got up and you were super excited about it. And for me, that was you know when I started with uh, limited credit services, and we were very small. We just had the limited as our uh, as our clients. You know, I got to do everything. Um, I created kind of this new little business. It's called third-party marketing where we'd sell um, Tupperware and stuff through credit card statements. And, you know, I had to figure out how to create a sales plan. I had to go to Express and convince them that they should, you know, put, sell appointment books in their credit card statements. And, you know, it was just, it was a very organic thing that I got to figure out how to do and how to grow that business. And then, I think when I, you know, left Alliance, they had been um, sold to a, a private uh, investment firm, Welsh Carson, and then they took them public, and it was a much bigger, much more bureaucratic company, and it was just, you know, 16 years later, it just it just wasn't, you just didn't feel the same way about it, you know. Um, and FIS, I got to experience both of those sides, because at FIS itself, it was more of the big company bureaucratic side, where when I worked with the startups, I felt that same feeling again. Um, and, you know, I felt it again. I was vice president of uh, marketing for Clairvoy um, for the last two and a half years, and that's also exciting um, just in terms of, you know, getting your hands dirty and doing everything. You know, I'm, I'm not just an executive sitting. You know, I am, like, packaging things up and shipping things and putting together trade shows and going on and doing digital ads, and um, I, I just think that stuff's fun. That's, that's kind of the delineation of responsibilities. Katie's decided if somebody has to grab a mop, it'll be me. 
and in exchange if something needs packaged up, she usually does that. If somebody has to get on the roof of the building, now it's a really big building, but you know, it's, it's, this is not small stuff, it's 60,000 square foot office tower, but um, if somebody's got to get on the building in a snowstorm and reset the air conditioner, she invites me to go do that too. <laughs> it sounds like you both have the same itch. I think what I'm curious to hear now is a lot of times when people who jump ship and they do something entrepreneurial, they kind of skip those first few days and weeks and they talk about, you know, what do you do the day after that job is over? Like, you wake up that morning, you don't have a structure, you don't have an itinerary in place. How do you get the ball rolling? And what did those few days and maybe they turn into weeks look like for both of you and how did it evolve from there? Well, I think we probably didn't do things right because we didn't take a break. The first thing we did is went out and got office space. We had, you know, space at 400 Westrich and Franklinton and started going there uh, probably not every day but you know I, I mean i think i was Pretty there three times a week you're probably there more um went out and got a part-time job um working with clairvoy at rev one so that i could generate some income while we were doing this I, I think in hindsight like maybe taking a month off or something would have been a good idea but not having done it since I graduated from, even before I graduated from college, that just wasn't comfortable for me, I felt like. And that's just my personality. Like, I have to know what's next. I have to be going. And so yeah, the last three years has been probably a little more of a struggle for me just because I didn't always know what was next and what was going to happen. And I had to have some faith that it was, you know, as long as we, we worked hard, made the contacts that we needed to, and that things were going to work out. But we have a good business partnership because... Um, I'm an I'm a eternal optimist. I'm a terminal. So this is super funny. Well, we will go to meetings, and I will leave the meeting thinking they hated us. They hated what we were talking about. They absolutely said no. You know, that's done. And Fred will say, that was a great meeting. Like, they, they loved gonna, it. They're going to give us it. money. And he <laughs> will continue talking to them. And you know what? They will. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm so uh, thankful for that because – I'm definitely, I'm not a salesperson, and if it were left to me, you know, I would have probably given up but a year and a half got, ago. We, we both <laughs> got, there's this mutual faith. My two favorite phrases, and we hear them a million times around the office, are, don't worry, we'll figure, we'll just figure it out. We'll just figure it out. And if that's the worst thing that happens today, it's a good day. And that's a lot of it. You just get up and you figure it out. You figure out which nail is sticking up the most, what scares you the most today. Work on that. And Katie's bought into, he's a little crazy, but I'll be darned, this crazy, he, he finds a way, we work it out. And I've got this confidence that she'll sweat the details and she won't let us fall on her face. I will, like, forget to sign the grant application that gives us money and she'll come in on the last day and say, hey, dummy, we really worked hard for this. You might want to sign the contract that's been sitting on your desk for three months. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right here. Um, so it's it's a good, and we've got, both of us have incredibly supportive spouses. Um, her husband, Todd, is an amazingly patient man in all of this because I, I lied to both of them at the beginning of this and I told him it was going to be a year. And it took us three. And um, my wife is a saint because um, she's put up with these projects and us being stressed out and um, living the craziness of, we'll just figure it out. 
So you, you go to the office space a couple times a week. Um, when you start hiring employees, and how does the project kind of start to evolve into something that's what it is today? Like, you know, you said it's three years. Obviously, there's a lot that goes on in there. Are there milestones that really stick out to you guys along that path? Uh, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest things that we did was find folks who could help us navigate um, Columbus, um, just to be broad. But we knew that the funding for this Fortuity project wasn't going to be able to be traditional funding because we were buying a building that was going to be empty. So there wasn't going to be a consistent rent stream. Um, so banks wouldn't touch it. It's a building over at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel's leaving, Mount Carmel West. Mount Carmel's moving their hospital to Grove City. A lot of those medical um, practices that are in the building we were looking at are going to be moving as well. So it, we couldn't get traditional financing. And, and it also the business that we were developing is a social enterprise. So we're looking at taking the profits that we generate and putting a lot of those back into the nonprofit partners that we're going to work with to help you know, create this ecosystem that we're um, really excited about. So it kind of turns to this in government funding, right? There are these things called new market tax credits, which are incredibly complicated. Um, and we had to find folks who understood those. We had to find folks who understood if we were going to get money from the state, money from the county, money from the city, who do we talk to? Um, because it's not, it's, not, it's not that easy, right? And there's a lot of people you have to talk to, and there's a lot of politics you have to work around. Um, so we were lucky enough to, uh, well, Fred was lucky enough to know Greg Lashutka, the former mayor of Columbus, and he steadfastly worked with us every week. We would meet with him um, for the three years, and you know he still works with us today. So we are eternally grateful for you know all of the the knowledge that and doors that he opened and I don't think we would have been able to do this project without him you know it's it, we've got a wall right inside of our office and it's got um, big prints of the logos of the of our partner organizations and our funding organizations uh, all levels of government nonprofit entities the list of we couldn't have gotten this project done without is probably has 20 people and entities. But he started. I'm just saying he started Greg, it for Greg us. Greg was an inflection point. He is a very, very good man. He has been unbelievably generous. Um, Greg helped us to navigate um, meeting folks in City Hall, at the state level, uh, finance fund here in town helped us navigate federal and state the, ta the tax credits. Um, because it's it's a very aggressive startup, most startups don't start by raising 12 million bucks and buying a building. A lot of the, lot of the turns in the road were uh, financial, but not all of them. Katie mentioned that we leased space at 400 West Rich turning point when they decided not to renew our lease. Uh, they decided they wanted artists in that space and not folks that were doing social enterprise. So we had to scramble around and find new office space. And there is no, there's very little office space in Franklinton. We had been very deliberate about wanting to move down there. And so we, Katie found us a space in Grandview that we went there for 18 months. And it was great, but it wasn't where we wanted to be. We thought we were going to buy the Graham Ford 
location on West Broad Street. We chased, that's my albatross. If you've ever read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, I swear to God that thing almost killed me. We spent two years chasing Graham Ford. Well, you know, the crazy thing, there's an empty building that's had a for sale sign in front of it for seven years. Yep. Right? It's in a state of disrepair. It's got a realtor. Crazy us, we thought. Why don't we go buy that building? Yep. We'll buy it, we'll renovate it, like, this will be easy. We literally said, we'll <laughs> probably pick that thing up for $2 million and be in business in nine months. And we found out it's not technically for sale. There were some EPA issues with it that needed remedied, and then all of the development in Franklin start, Franklinton started happening. Um, and then I think there's a lot of, well, who really should get it? What should the use for that land be? Um, so, it, you know, at some point you had to, we had to make the decision that we were going to leave it alone yeah. and move on to something else. Uh, that re that's really another one. When we started this, um, Franklinton was not chic and in vogue. People weren't investing in Franklinton. It was the poorest neighborhood by any measure in central Ohio. By the way, it still is. Um, but none of these, uh, Kaufman and the Gravity Project, and we love the folks at Kaufman and we love the Gravity Project, the River and Rich Project, the only, 400 West was there and that was about it. And that was just a bunch of artists and a couple of folks trying to renovate a really old building that was falling apart. Um, and so we thought we were going into the poorest neighborhood. The, the hospital hadn't announced that it was closing or moving. Um, we thought empty building, sign, realtor, we'll be able to get it. Uh, in the midst of all of that, a billion dollars of projects and investment gets announced in Franklinton. The hospital announces it's closing. Um, there were, there have been a lot of gut checks in this. Um, it hasn't been easy. It's, there have been a lot of times when I think we looked at each other and we looked at our spouses or we were on the receiving end from our spouses of, why are you still doing this? I've jokingly said the reason I'm stuck with it is because I'm too dumb to know when to quit. So logistically, it's obviously been nothing like what was originally planned out, which it sounds like with almost every you know, interesting and eventually successful venture that we sit down with. But in terms of what you guys are doing and the granularity of that and the mission and where you guys are at as an organization, can we talk about that, talk about the organizations that you guys are working with and then the value that you guys are providing with? And you mentioned there was a call center that's kind of evolved from there. Yeah, I mean, if we start back with, you know, Uprising Capital, um, it kind of started because of Fred's involvement in Franklinton and a nonprofit called Franklinton Rising. Right. And Franklinton Rising, um, what they do is they'll buy properties, uh, run down properties in Franklinton, and then they bring young adults in and teach them the trades while they fix up the houses. And the idea is to be able to then you know, sell those houses to folks in the community or rent them out to folks in the community. And so we're trying to beautify the neighborhood. We're trying to teach young adults the trades at the same time because you know, not, not everyone's, you know, college is not for everyone. We need to make sure that folks have these vocational opportunities. So. That was really kind of the first because Fred was involved. I also got involved from a marketing perspective and, and helped them. So we really started working with them a lot. But we still had this idea of this call center that we wanted to do. Um, but we started thinking about, like, why are all the call centers in the outskirts of Columbus? In the affluent suburbs. In the affluent suburbs, New Albany, Dublin, Hilliard. You know, they pay 12 to $14 an hour. That's not a living wage job um, for a lot of people who live in those suburbs, right? Well. 
That's evident by the fact that these call centers have like 130% turnover. Those aren't career positions for people. They're, they're, they're doing them in between other things or while they're in college or, you know, the folks for whom those are living wage jobs live more in the inner city and they don't have reliable transportation to get out to those places. So, you know, we kept thinking, let's just put a call center in the inner city. We can create hundreds of jobs and there'll be living wage jobs. Um, but after talking with a lot of people, we realized, I mean, the challenge was because those companies don't know how to hire folks who don't have a lot of previous work experience, who don't have you know, experience working in an office. They don't have the resources to help folks keep their jobs, like overcome all these barriers that they might face, whether it's childcare or legal issues or transportation issues, right? So we, after working with Franklin's and Rising, we realized, okay, we need to go out and find other agencies that we could bring into this project that would help eliminate those barriers for our employers once we get the call center up and running. Um, and we went down, we realized the first one is a like workforce development and training. People need training. So we went down to this nonprofit in Cincinnati called Cincinnati Works. They're, they have a, a great um, job training and placement program, and they will um, they'll, they're, they'll provide, provide affiliate information. So they'll help you get it started in your city. Right. And we went down with a bus full of people, and, and a woman, Beth Gifford, that went with us, she really felt a calling to do this. Her experience was in HR, and so she raised her hand and said, yeah, I want to bring this to Columbus. And so that then became the second nonprofit that we got involved with and helped to start, both financially um, and just from a development perspective. So, oh, and we're both on the board. Yeah, we sit on the board of that. So Columbus Works, that, that became... Um, and so we keep meeting different people as we do this project. And the third thing was somehow we got introduced, introduced to Gina again at Columbus Early Learning Centers. Um, Gina is, if you want to talk to somebody, she is an amazing, um, just intelligent woman who talked about getting her hands dirty. She is in there in the trenches working every day. Um, she has a PhD in business from Ohio State. Ohio State only gives out like two of those every other year or something crazy. But... So we met Gina and went and saw the work that she was doing at Columbus Early Learning. So they run is it three or four centers in the inner cities. Um, it's subsidized, federally subsidized early learning. It's not just daycare, right? They have certified teachers. They're really helping get these kids ready for kindergarten that don't have the same advantages um, as, as kids in the suburbs have. And we and realized... They're enabling working poor parents to work. Yeah. They, uh, they serve working poor... 80% uh, of their uh, clients are single moms who are working and have uh, preschool-age kids. 20% uh, are, are two-parent households. But these are folks that couldn't work if they didn't have subsidized childcare. Because if you if you're if you had entry-level skills and you can make 10 or 11 dollars an hour. Uh, depending upon where you go, childcare costs somewhere between five and eight dollars an hour. And so, if you make ten bucks an hour, and childcare costs somewhere between five and eight dollars an hour, economically, that's not sustainable. So they do phenomenal work, and and Gina convinced us that if you're going to run a large-scale employer in the inner city, uh, you're going to most of your employees are going to be single moms. Uh, having kids is a powerful motivator to go get a job. And um, you're going to have to solve the child care problem. 
So now we're working with them on a capital campaign to raise about $1.6 million to help them um, finish out the space in our building. So our building is kind of crazy. It was built, it's a three-story building, but with a ground floor that was built up on stilts. It's a parking garage now because Franklinton used to be in a floodplain. They built the flood wall. It's no longer a floodplain. So we can enclose that space and create another 12,000 square feet, which would be great for a 100-child early learning center. So we're taking money from um, what we've raised, about how much do you say, 1.3 1. 1. 1. million. million to finish that out and kind of do what you call a, it's a warm, dark shell. To rough it in. We're going to enclose the walls and do all the rough ends, but that's but, when we run out of money. Yeah, Columbus Early Learning will have to raise 1.6 to finish that space, to equip it, and to get started. So now we're working with them on that capital campaign to do that. So I feel like, probably going back to your question, like a lot of these projects and things we've gotten involved in have just come to us, right? It's not like we didn't go out and specifically look for them. It was through the lens of figuring out how we help employ people in Franklinton and how we help them stay employed and advance in their careers. We started meeting all of these different people who were doing great work in the community and realized, okay, we needed to somehow bring them into the project. And from the beginning, um, the objective was, we didn't start with a call center. We, we ended up with a call center as the solution. The, the goal was, how do, how do we create a macroeconomic impact in one neighborhood? Hundreds and hundreds of jobs. Um, I had coffee for years with a friend, Scott Arnold. He runs Central Ohio Youth for Christ, and they run a, an inner-city um, after-school program, uh, gymnasium, and get the kids in after school, and they run a, a really great unwed teen mothers program in that neighborhood. He's lived in that neighborhood for 20 years, and he, he challenged me for years. Fred, the only way this, remember, it was the poorest neighborhood in Central Ohio. There was, there was no investment going on. The hospital was going to be there forever. How do we get hundreds and hundreds of good jobs back in this neighborhood? Because nothing's ever going to change. So. When Katie and I started focusing on this, we said, we had a couple of tenants, it's got to be a macro impact, even in one neighborhood. It's got to be hundreds of jobs. I cannot tell you how many people, nonprofit and for-profit folks, said to us, your project's too ambitious. Why are you trying to raise all of this money? Why don't you just max out your credit cards and bootstrap it up and small business loan. get some small business loans that you personally guarantee and maybe in five years you'll employ ten people and I think we both believe in the the starfish principle the kid throwing the starfishes back it matters to the one but that was never our goal it would have mattered to those ten people but our goal was to do something that was macro that was scale and, and to a great extent, we, we really hope, we hope we can show other employers in central Ohio who a lot of them have taken an easier path by moving out to the affluent suburbs where you can get some farmland and build the building any way you want, but nobody really lives out there yet, and certainly not the people that, that you need to fill your, um, your entry-level jobs that... All these folks who live in our inner city who need a good job are an asset. And we, we, we want to show employers that moving back into 
our core is actually good for business. Um, we, we've said what social enterprise means to us is doing good is good business or doing good business by doing good. We're trying to do both. We're certainly trying to create something that is economically sustainable, but we're, our, our main goal was to do a whole lot of good while we're creating something that's economically sustainable. Using good business principles to do good business. <laughs> so I'm going to go a little off script here, and okay. I got a question. Um, have you ever thought or were you ever concerned about when you mentioned earlier a billion dollars of investment in Franklinton area, uh, are you ever concerned about all that investment pushing out the people you're trying to help? Well, that's exactly the reason we're doing what we're doing. Absolutely. You've seen it before. You saw it in the short north. You're seeing it already in Franklinton as real estate prices start to increase and rents are increasing. Um, we thought, can there was a, an article in the Atlantic a few years ago about this specifically, right? Can there be a different model of gentrification, and I'm doing air quotes, um, in Franklinton as, as they develop? Um, it's great that all of this economic prosperity is happening, what they call East Franklinton, right? The area east of 315. Adjacent, what I call adjacent to downtown. Everybody lives on the other side of 315, yep. right? 90% of them. And if they don't have good paying jobs, they will never get to participate. You know, it's great that there's the stops now in the Idea Foundry. I love that. But there's not that many people who live in Franklinton who can afford, you know, a $4 coffee. Um, so we've got to figure out how to make this a different model and make sure that folks can participate, you know, in, in the economic prosperity that's going on. And, um, I hope we hope other employers will you know take our lead and bring some good paying jobs but it's not just bringing good paying jobs but making sure that there's uh, the systems in place to help people get them and to keep and them. to keep them right so that there's you were telling me a really good story about a, st a study that was happening with regards to keeping a job over time versus having to restart so they um, this is a study that Beth Gifford of Columbus works found for all of us um, they studied groups of folks that were had entry-level skills and could get entry-level jobs. And they separated out the folks, the group that they kept turning over, and then they get another job. It's one of the, one of the real misconceptions about people living at or near poverty or the working poor is uh, folks in the affluent suburbs think they don't want to work. Most of these folks have had 15, 20, 25 jobs. They've had more jobs than any of us has ever had. The problem is they turn over. They're not able to sustain the They have a transportation issue, right? They're not on time enough, so they are let go. Yeah. They've got an issue, child care issue. They have to be Could home for a sick, couple days. They're sick. let go. You know, something legally comes up, and they've got to go to court. They're let go. So they're having to restart every single time. It's not that they don't want to work. There's just too many barriers for them to keep the job consistently. So this first group that they measured in this study kept reset, I'll say 50 just for, um, just for illustration, um, kept resetting every six or nine months at 8.50, get another job at 8.50, lose that, quit that, get another job at 8.50. And the second group were the folks that managed to sustain their employment, managed to stay, maybe they got a little promotion, they gained some more skills, they got an annual cost of living increase, 
they got a little more skills, they got a little promotion, they got a little raise. A couple of years in, the pay differential was 43%. So the 850s that kept resetting at 850s, they never went anywhere. And in fact, if they keep getting a job at 850, they're, they're actually going backwards because we still have a level of inflation. But the folks that managed to sustain the job, even though they started at the same place, were making 43% more a couple of years later. And, and that was one of the big influences. It, it's really hard to get out of poverty without a job. It's really hard to get out of poverty without being able to hang on to that job. It's really hard to get out of poverty if it's not a good job, if it's not full-time, with benefits, over t- time and a half over 40, um, some training opportunities, because you can get a job, but and even if you get a job and you keep the job, if you can't keep advancing your skills, you're not going to keep advancing the pay. And at its most basic, poverty is a money issue, not enough of it. From there, let's kind of look towards the future. What do the next three to five years like for both of you, and, and what's your plan for, you know, maybe short term? I think in the next three to five years, we hope to have three to 500 people um, working in the call center in our building. Um, we hope to um, look at other uh, locations within Columbus You know, as we achieve some success in Franklinton, figure if there's an opportunity to expand into other areas of the city as well, um, and as well as maybe other areas of the state. I think that's really something we're going to look to being entrepreneurs, right? Is how this is great, but this isn't. It, once it's successful, you know, we're going to. That's going to be awesome. But it's we we'll want to know what's next, what to do with that. You know, do we franchise the model? Do we help other people um, do it in other places? Do you do what Columbus, Cincinnati Works did and just give the model away? Yeah. Just tell people how to do it. We we think we hope that this is a replicatable model. Yeah, it's it's really simple when you finally get it down on a piece of paper the right way. You just start with an employer at the core, that's the anchor tenant, and you wrap all these good nonprofits that have been around. Heck, Columbus Early Learning Centers has been around 132 years. Mid-Ohio Food Bank is one of the most effective food banks in the nation. Matt Habash has also been an incredible supporter of this project. Um, but nonprofits that each only focus on one dimension of poverty, whether that be affordable housing or legal or uh, healthy foods or, or health care or anything else, poverty is a really complicated issue, so you can't just focus on one dimension. We've tried that uh, in my lifetime, in all of our lifetime the poverty rate hadn't changed in Central Ohio. It's exactly the same as the day I was born. Um, so this, all these wonderful nonprofits focusing on one dimension of it doesn't work. We, we think this is dirt simple, but we can't find anybody else that's doing it around the country. So it's either a really cool idea or it's a really bad idea. Ask, invite us back in a couple of years and <laughs> we'll, we'll tell you all about it. But um, the reason that the state of Ohio Um, uh, Ohio Development Services Agency. They're the economic development organization for the state. Director Dave Goodman was phenomenal in this. The reason I believe Director Goodman 
supported this project and, and the reason that ODSA really stepped up and supported it was because we all believe this is replicatable. We, we think we, we want to take care of business and grow this one and get it where it needs to be. Katie's absolutely right, but you go do one of these over on Parsons Avenue on the south side. You could go do one of these on Cleveland Avenue up in Linden. Uh, we're not going to run out of people who are living in low-opportunity neighborhoods who want a better opportunity, want an opportunity to earn their way and work their way out of their current situation. And then we've had three conversations with Akron. We've had three conversations with Toledo. We've had a conversation with Dayton. Um, the reason we've had three with a couple of them is because they keep coming back to us. And we're going, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Let us, let, us do, let us stay focused on the ball. Let us do one the right way. Let us prove the model out. But there are 25,000 call center employees in Columbus alone. There are over 100,000 in the state of Ohio alone. There are 2.2 million in the United States. But we also, as a nation, hold millions of these jobs away in other countries like India and the Philippines. And I mean no, no disrespect by this, but the American consumer is much more satisfied by onshore voice customer service speaking to someone who speaks English as their first language, who speaks English as their native language, than um, the call being transferred overseas to someone who's speaking English as their second language. And so, and that's millions of more jobs. So every major city needs good jobs back in their core. This happens to be a business model that, that has, there, there are seven promotion opportunities for somebody that comes in at the trainee level. And so this particular business fits well, but Every single city needs better jobs back in their inner city, back in their core. So something else um, that I don't think, I, I think in the next couple of years um, is technology. Uh, we both spent 20 years in financial services developing you know, new products in that area, new technologies, and um, we both have a real passion for figuring out how we do that for the underserved population, right? How do we create financial services products that don't screw people over with egregious fees, you know, for or overdraft or for cashing a check? Um, you know, there's got to be a way, just something that's really simple, easy for people to, to use and helps them budget, helps them manage their money. So as they do get these jobs and they advance in their careers and are starting to make more money, they know what to do with that money. Um, so I definitely see us in the next couple of years um, have some products that we'd been working on while we were uh, doing some of this fundraising um, because that was, you know, ebbs and, ebbed and flowed. And, um, but I definitely see us probably picking some of that stuff back up. But the theme that runs through all of them is running good businesses that will do good and trying to trying to create rational economics while helping folks to better their lives. One of the things that we said at the beginning is if we find a nonprofit that needs our help, we'll help a nonprofit. It's not a very good business model. You give them your time and then you give them your money. But you can do a heck of a lot of good if you do it selectively. Um, maybe it's a for-profit social enterprise. 
fortuity is structured as a for-profit. If we can't generate a margin, you can't sustain the jobs. Uh, if we do a financial technology solution, and we have done a lot of work on it because between the two of us, uh, she, she's been doing fintech products for 20, I've been doing them for longer, she's being nice. Um, it'll be the same thing, it'll be serving the same constituency because um, you know, Columbus is awesome, it's the fastest growing economy in the Midwest. Um, Nothing makes up for job growth and construction cranes. It's why this is such a great place to live. But Mayor Ginther is spot on when he says there are two Columbuses. There's a Columbus for the people that live in the affluent communities, suburbs, and then there's a Columbus for the folks who live in our inner city. And they're very, very, very different. So we're just, we're just trying to bring a little hope and opportunity to the folks that live in the latter. Absolutely, and I think that's a great place to kind of pivot towards our last question of the show, centered around the theme of conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling the two of you why we chose that for our theme, uh, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how can you apply it to your lives? And we'll start with uncomfortably. <laughs> um, so when I worked at Alliance Data, um, I helped to create an innovation team there. Hadn't Alliance Data had one product, it was private label credit, and we knew we needed to grow. We needed new products, expand a new market, so we created this innovation team. And I remember I would always get super frustrated because I, we'd come up with these great ideas that were probably years ahead, and they'd get shot down, right? They didn't want to invest in them. It was you know, too far um, from the, the core competencies, and I'd get so frustrated by that. And then I realized one day, like, I need to put my money where my mouth is. Like, I've been here 16 years, my first job out of college. Like, I know this company in and out. I am super comfortable here. Um, I don't want to make a change. I don't want to take any risks. Why would I expect this company to do that when I'm not? So that's when I made the decision to leave and, and go to FIS. And I, I feel like that's, um, you know, live uncomfortably. Like, in order to really make things happen and to make a difference, you, you have to just take that risk even though it stresses you out and <laughs> you know you may not make as much money as you did before um, or you know um, sometimes any right <laughs> um, it's when the best things happen yeah um, live uncomfortably at middle age or approaching middle age maybe for her, quit a perfectly good high-paying corporate job with great benefits, and I had an incredible executive admin. Uh, she made a fortune. Um, uh, had had corporate credit card and uh, got to have nice dinners when I was traveling. And chuck all that with nothing because we had this vision that we could take these things that we'd learned that had served us well in the corporate world and we could apply it in a way that was more meaningful. Uh, but that's some scary, scary. Kristen and I have got six kids. Uh, only one of them is done with college. Um, to, you know, you... you 
I can't tell you the number of times that we've we've had to look ourselves in the mirror or each other or our respective spouses in the face and just kind of live uncomfortably for a while longer. Um, if we'd known this was going to take three years, there's no way anybody would have done it. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, we just kept making the decision to get up today and go figure it out and live uncomfortably and take the risks. Um, honest to God, the day before we got all the financing closed in the business and the building block, I wasn't sure we were going to close. We were living very uncomfortably at that point because we had we were at risk for what was a lot of money to us, and if it hadn't closed, and hell, we had our our lawyer was going to send us a bill for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars if it didn't close. Um, so. I love the I love the tagline. Um, we're gonna keep doing it, and we're gonna see if we can make a little bit of a difference. That's a great answer, both of you, Fred, Katie. Thanks a lot for joining us on the show today. And Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That is uh, Fred and Katie of Fortuity Calling and Uprising Capital. Thanks a lot for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs, to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.